Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 4, Jesus' final exam. We're going to be in the book of Luke. Got a Bible? That's where we're headed. Luke chapter 4. Luke 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. So we've, Jesus is about to launch into a very short, very potent public ministry. 30 years in absolute obscurity, three years in public ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that's how it goes. But before he does that, he's going to do one final thing to demonstrate his power to save us. And not that he needs to do one more thing, seemingly, but he does, and you're going to see why in just a second. But what he does here, one more demonstration of his power, and that demonstration is just simply this, he takes on the devil. That's what he does, head on. And not to say the devil hasn't been around, uh, but here he goes looking for him, if you will. Notice the way it reads here in verse one of chapter four. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is a horrible, ugly place. Not a single thing there, and it's not for overnight. Notice, for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. You should say so, right? And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And so we're going to be looking at these temptations of Christ here for the next several Sundays together, uh, the uniqueness of them that were to him, and uh, also how they apply to us. Because basically the same ploys he uses here, the devil that is, is the same ploys he's going to use against us, and we'll, we'll see that together. But, but effectively what you have here in Luke and what you have here in the early chapters of, of the gospel writers is this buildup. And the buildup effectively is just saying that all to show that there's no doubt that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Savior. He's the one. He's not an apparition. He's actually the guy. And uh, begins with Mary. Mary gets an announcement from the, from the angel. You're going to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and the child's going to be the son of God. And then Joseph, a couple of nights later, gets the same angel visiting him, says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, right? Because the child conceived of hers by the Holy Spirit, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And we have Savior, Savior, Son of God. Uh, and then Mary goes to visit Elizabeth and the baby inside Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, pre-born, right? Uh, uh, leaps in his womb to acknowledge that the Savior has now entered the room. Uh, then the shepherds in the fields get an announcement from the angels, say, today a Savior has been born. The Magi come to say, who, where is he who's been born king? And then the testimonies of Simeon and Anna and then John at his baptism saying, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then the Father from heaven speaking a similar thing, behold my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then the descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And so we have all these things. And of course we saw last time this uh, incredible genealogy that defies all normal bounds uh, to be sure. So why do we need one more thing? We don't need another thing to prove that he's the son of God, that he's the savior, right? Well, that's the way you and I would reason, but that's not the way God reasoned because there is one more thing. In fact, it's not a minor thing. Uh, it, it, in fact, I'll just say this, if he doesn't qualify for this one, all the other ones make no difference. They basically go down the drain. 
See, if, if Jesus is to be our savior, then there is one rather formidable credential that he must possess. So you understand our problem is not miracles, not that, there's, not that we couldn't use some. That's not our real need. Our problem is sin. That's our world problem. Not politics, it's not global interest, it's not, I don't know, uh, coronavirus or all that, guys. It's sin. Sin is what's destroying us. It's what's separated us from each other, and it's what's separated us from God. And so if the Savior doesn't come and deal with sin, well then, guys, we're in, in terrible shape. In fact, we're headed to hell. Sin has produced death, and since the power of sin and death are in the clutches of a guy known, known in the scriptures as the prince of this world, otherwise we know him as the devil, then he must be taken on. He must be. And so that's exactly what Jesus comes to do. And here's the, his credentials would have been incomplete without this battle. So if he could not feat, defeat Satan and his temptations, how can he save us from the same? Make sense? It makes sense. Like I said, we weren't asking God to do this, but God is doing this because he wants us to know the caliber of savor that we have and what, what he's able to do. And so, again, what, what good is a virgin birth if he fails? What good is a virgin birth if he gives in to sin? What good is the announcement from heaven if he gives in to temptation and sins? I mean, how can, how can we who are victims have a victim also as a savior? It doesn't make any sense. See, I can't save you because I'm also a victim of sin. And you're a victim of sin. We can't help each other. We're down at the bottom and looking for a rope to pull us out, and there's just not one. Uh, but Jesus has come. He's become not only the sender of the rope, but he's the rope himself. And so this, and this is the capstone of his messianic credentials. And it is the final, if you will, as I titled here, the final exam that he takes before entering into his uh, public ministry. So there's several questions that, are, that come up with this and, and that we need to deal with. And the first question is an important one, uh, just linking Scripture together and making sure that we understand it. Is Jesus like Adam? Is he? So I don't know if you put all this together or not, but there was another one just like Jesus before. His name was Adam. He was perfect, sinless, undefiled, Lived in a perfect environment with a perfect relationship with the Father. He had everything going for him, 100%, but he was tempted one time, and he failed. And guess what? He plunged 100% of us into the same circumstances. He took the entire, literally baptized the entire human race into sin and corruption and the curse, and we've not come up. We've gone under, and we've not come up because of what he did he was tempted and he failed the first time and yet he had 100% of everything going for him. So back to the question, is Jesus like Adam? Well, first of all, yes, he is a human. We traced the genealogy last time, all the way from Jesus, send it all the way back, all the way to Adam. Jesus received flesh and blood just like all the other descendants of Adam, just like you and just like me. He doesn't, he's not like a man he doesn't appear like a man. He actually is a man. Look at what this says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. What part of all aren't you getting? It's all. All is all in all things. How, how human are you? 90%? You got an alien blood, blood there or something in your, in your, in your lineage? 100% human. I'm 100% human. Jesus is 100% human. Made like us in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins 
of the people. So in all things, he was made like us. So like Adam, he was perfect. Like Adam, he was sinless. Like Adam, he was undefiled. Like Adam, he was, had a perfect relationship with the Father. So like Adam, is he going to fall? See, that's the question. It is a good question, isn't it? So, so we wouldn't oppose it because we don't have enough running around between our ears to know better, but God does. And so he puts Jesus out there as a demonstration to see, uh, so that we could see that what kind of savior he is. Again, we can't have a victim as a savior. He has to be a victor. If he cannot conquer sin, temptation, and the devil, he can't rescue you or me. He can't rescue himself. He can't rescue us. And so thus the need for this demonstration, if you will, as we have here in the first chapter, uh, first verses of of the fourth chapter. So Jesus was tempted, listen, in every way just as we are. Look at what it says. Just as you are, tempted. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the one thing he didn't do, he's tempted just like you are, but the one thing he didn't do that you do is that he did not fall into sin. He never did. He was perfect. Now let's, let's get back to chapter four. And I want you to notice there that Satan begins to tempt him and it's 40 days of temptation. This is not to be confused, hear me, with his first temptation. How do I know that? Because he's 30 years old. So you think it's only now that Satan got, went after him? Think again. 30 years, most of us got all our sin and out of the way by the time we were 30, isn't that right? <laughs> yep. Lion share, gone. You think the devil came at him when he was young? You bet. Teenager, yep. Adult, yep. Here he is, we're just getting a picture of what's been happening in his life. In every way like us. Were you tempted as a child? So was he. As a preteen, were you tempted? So was he. As a high school student, no. <laughs> so was he. As a young adult, were you tempted? As an adult, were you tempted? Of course, of course, there is not a human experience without it. So was he. Most of us, like I said, got our sinning out of the way by the time he was 30, by the time we're 30, by the time Jesus is 30, notice what the Father says about him. This is a statement, big statement. You are my beloved son, this is the baptism. In you I am well pleased. So nothing he's said, nothing he's done, and nothing that he's thought for 30 years has displeased the Father. That's a huge statement. Nothing he said, nothing he's done, nothing he's thought has displeased the Father for 30 years. Have you even had a single day I couldn't think of mine. I couldn't come up with a day. I've had better days. And I've had worse days. But 30 years? Wow. Wow. So Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and then backing up to our, to our line here of thought, from Adam all the way to Jesus. Adam had it really good, didn't he? See, you have your sinless Savior being put on display here, demonstrated to be the sinless savior in the worst conditions. What were the conditions that Adam had? Do you remember? Under, under what conditions did he sin? Was he in the wilderness 40, year, 40 days with, without food? 
Hardly. Adam was in a perfect garden, the best imaginable place. He was in a paradise. Jesus is in a trackless wilderness. He's in the antithesis of this, is he not? Desolate, forsaken, dangerous place, one of the most dangerous places in Israel, the Judean wilderness. Listen, here's another thing. Adam lived in a sinless world. See, you and I can't imagine a day without sin. Not only can we not imagine that, we can't imagine a world without sin. Adam lived in a completely sinless world. Never saw sin. Never saw a person tempted. Never saw a person fall. Not even once. First time he's tempted, though. Boom. He falls. First time. On the other hand, did Jesus grow up in a sinless world? Think Mary and Joseph's home was a sinless home? All due respect to these guys. They're sinners. Gave birth to sinners, except with the exception of Jesus. Brothers and sisters were sinners. His hometown, full of sin, just like yours. His nation, look at the nation, that, the way they crucify him, right? You're talking about a sinful nation. The world he lived in, sinful world. He saw sin right and left. Part of the pull of sin is that, ain't everybody doing it? Yeah. They are. That's the conditions that he grew up in. Not like Adam's at all. Adam didn't have any of that. Adam was in a, in a perfect condition also physically. Think about it. No illness. Perfect food. I don't even know if he'd been alive that long, really. Maybe a couple of weeks by the time the temptation happens. He had it 100% going for him. Nothing wrong with him. He and Eve, they had it all, didn't they? Well fed. What about Jesus? 40 days? It says, and he became hungry. Like I said, mm, yeah, I would say so. So, so listen, <clears throat> Adam had everything, and he fell. Jesus had nothing, and he did not. This is the display. This is God putting him out there. God is trying to show us, listen, this is your Savior. This is who he is. The worst of circumstances, silencing all doubt and shutting all mouths to the contrary. That's exactly what he's doing here. So, so Adam and Eve have it good, and Jesus, listen, here's another important point, was tempted more than any man. I'm going to put something in my, feel my throat starting to catch up on him here. <coughs> Come down with a little cold. Mm. Jesus was tempted more than any man. How can I say that? I'm already 53, about. He was only 33. Seemed like I've had, what, 20 years on him. How old are you? Don't answer. Older. <laughs> how could he be tempted more than any man? Here's how I know. It's not with a matter of frequency. It's a matter of intensity. With a greater intensity than anyone has ever, who has ever lived, that includes you and me, Jesus was tempted. Let me demonstrate this to you. How many of you are sinners? All of you. How many times have you given into temptation? Not a number that high. Right? So, so if, if the order of magnitude of temptation is on a scale from 1 to 10, and you got off like at 5, that's where you fell. Do you have any idea what 10 is like? No, you do not. You got off at eight or seven or four. You have no idea what, what the maximum pressure of temptation, that temptation, whatever it was, whatever circumstance you were in, 
what that was like. Why? Because you got off the boat. Listen, every time, every time Jesus was tempted, it went to 10. How do we know that? Because he never budged. He never budged. He experienced the maximum pressure every time he's tempted. That's again why it says here, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows. He knows the maximum. He understands it. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Under the best circumstances, Adam fell to temptation. Under the worst of circumstances, Jesus never fell, even with scores of temptation sent his way. This is our Savior. This is the proof of it. This is why God is doing it. He's showing you, listen, this is the one that you can trust. This is the one who, you, who sympathizes with you. This is the one. This is the one that saves us from our sins and death because he saved himself from the same. This is the one. This is why the Bible calls Jesus, listen, the last Adam. He's the last one. Or he, he can be for you. You see, Adam, because of his sin, created a, a lineage of sin and death. How effective was Adam's sin? How many sinners do I have here? How many sinners has there been since the day Adam and Eve conceived their first child? All of them. That's very effective. That's like totally of 100%. And every sin leads to death, does it not? And so every sinner, every, every child born of them was a sinner, and every child born of them also died, have they not? So will you. Prorate yourself, because it's coming. When, that's why Jesus is called the last Adam, because he creates a new genealogy, not the kind of genealogy that, that, uh, that Adam has that leads to sin and death. Notice what it says here in Romans chapter 5. Emphasis mine. For by the transgression of the one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man. How many people die? All of them. How effective was his sin? 100%. Much more, how do you get much more than 100%? Much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So Adam's sin was 100% effective, right? Plunged us all into the curse, all into sin, all into death. No exceptions. 100% effective. How effective, good question, will the sinless life of Jesus and the ultimate sacrifice that he made for us be in making us righteous? How effective? What does it say? Much more. How do you get much more than 100%? I don't know. Doesn't work for my math either. That's exactly what God says. So, so as certain as it was that you being born into this world in the line of Adam, being born a sinner and growing up to sin, and because of that sin and current, as certain as that is, so certain it is, is those who trust Christ will receive the provision of, through that provision of grace that God has given us through him will reign with him. That's how certain it is. Wow. And so one more final point. Jesus didn't sin. Do you know why? Because he couldn't. Because he couldn't. It's an important point. He could not. Do you know why? Because he's God. That's why. See, the question would be, well, I've got a human here, and humans are capable of sin. Yeah, but not this human. 
This human is also 100% human, just like you, but also 100% God all at the same time. There you got math that doesn't work again. But you just have to take it for what it is. Why couldn't he sin? Because he's God, that's why. Because he's God, by his very nature, he cannot sin. See, that's why he sets up a new line. A new line that, that by our nature, we're recreated in, in Christ Jesus and we're turned through the new birth into something that, that ultimately, eventually, eternally will not be able to sin. That's gonna be awesome. So, so why not, here's a question, why not just tell us that? Why go through all this, you know, like I said, to go out in the wilderness and not eat for 40 crazy days and then deal with the devil and just, why not pinch his head off, you know, and why, why put up with this? Why not stand up on a mountain and say, by the way, in case you're wondering, although I am a man, I am also God, and thus I cannot sin, and so I am very much qualified to be your Savior. Could he have done that? Well, he could do whatever he want. That's not what he did. Why did he do that? Why did he not do that, I should say? Because, again, to close our mouths, especially the mouth of the devil that says, no one really knows. We can't be too sure. So God puts him on public display. Here you go, take a shot. Have at it. 33 years of my life. Worst possible circumstances. Take your shot, take your best shot. See if I sin. Familiar with uh, the radio personality preacher by the name of J. Vernon McGee? Anybody listen to him? You, still, you can still get him. No, he's been dead for, I don't know, 25 years. He's still, I guess, he's ricocheting out there in the airwaves or something. <laughs> He is a great preacher, great teacher, ordained Presbyterian minister, uh, pastor over, I don't know, a lot of the South. Uh, Eventually wound up as a Presbyterian church in Los Angeles, and then from there went to a non-denominational Bible church called the Church of the Open Door. And he was pastor there for, I believe, the last final 30 years of his life, more or less. And a great guy. I have his commentaries at my office. I just love love to listen to him, love love to read his stuff. You know, he was born in Texas. He's from Hillsboro, Texas, between Dallas and Waco. There was nothing there. There wasn't nothing there then. There's nothing there now. <laughs> That's where he was born. He's born to an itinerant family, itinerant because his dad works in uh, the oil field. If you're familiar with the oil field, the oil field is where it is. Wherever it's, wherever it's going, that's where you move. And so he moved his family to different places. And so J. Vernon McGee grew up in, born in Hillsboro, but grew up a lot in West Texas, uh, central Oklahoma, eventually wound up with his family in Kentucky and, and Tennessee. And uh, he tells a story about an experience that he had while living out in West Texas, going to school, and they were running a train track through his town, through the town that he lived in. And one particular place where the train went through, they were gonna have it to span this huge canyon between two mesas. So two flat mesas and there was a big canyon in between, and they were having to span it with a bridge, and they were building this huge bridge. And of course, it's gotta be able to hold up a whole train. So it was not a small undertaking. Months and months they were building on this. Crews of all kinds coming from down the railroad tracks from both directions coming and bringing supplies and machinery and stuff and <clears throat> took lots of work. Finally they were finished. Made an announcement to his little town that he was a part of saying that they were going to have a dedication and a celebration for the completion of this big train trussle thing. And so in 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 honor of the occasion, they brought locomotives down the train tracks from opposite directions and they parked them nose to nose in the middle of this big train trussle. Right on top, right in the middle of the biggest part of the span. 
parked them right there. And, you know, it was really cool, and everybody was talking about it, and they were saying, well, somebody happened to mention to one of the people that were in charge of the railroad company, saying, why did y'all do that? He says, to test the train trestle. He said, to trust, test the train trestle? You're putting millions of dollars at stake, and you're not really sure if this trestle can hold two trains? He said, he said sir, let me say something to you. It's not because we're not sure. We know what it'll do. He says, we want to make sure that you know what it will do. And, and he used this as an illustration of why, why did God put Jesus to the test? Was he not certain that his son can withstand it? No, guys. He knew. Jesus cannot sin because he's God. But we didn't know that. I don't think Satan knew that. But now we do, don't we? Now you know the kind of savior you've got. Now you know the kind of rescue that he can offer us. Now you know as you go through temptation the kind of help that you have, the kind of uh, um, care from the high priest that you have. Now you know the kind of salvation that he brings to you, which is much more than any sin or any death could have ever brought to us. It's 100% effective that, as that was. He's much more. He's much more. I'm going to ask you if you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we think about these final things that... God has done, he's done such great things for us through his son, bringing us life, demonstrating to us that he is the savior, that he's the rescuer. Have, have you trusted him as savior? Have you trusted him? You see, Jesus didn't come to just show us a, a good way to live. No, he came to be our savior. And hear me carefully, it's not enough to know that he's the savior. He's got to be your Savior. Have you trusted Him as your Savior? Have you accepted what He did on the cross, dying to pay for your sins, taking your place, offering you the switch of His righteousness in place of your sinfulness? Have you accepted Him as Savior? I would encourage you to do that right now in the heart heart of hearts, crying out to him, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I want you to forgive my sins. I want you to make me right with the Father. Jesus, I thank you for being the qualified savior, being the only one who, who could take on what was coming for us, take on sin and Satan and hell itself. Lord, because you are the victor, we are no longer victims. We thank you for that. We thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for the message that this brings to us, the message of hope, of reconciliation with each other and with God, and a life eternal. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.